0: Welcome everyone to Gay Essay Radio, where you are family. I am Dr. Ezio Beraldi, and you are listening to our program called Let's Talk. A program in which we discuss various issues, topical issues and personal issues that affect our everyday lives. With me in the studio is our, our resident panel of Krista Kutzia psychologist and sexologist, and uh, Charles Greve, a specialized counselor with a special interest in gay and lesbian relationships. Our topics today are gender, sex, and gender identity. Big issues, big words, and very topical at the moment, and stuff that everyone seems to be able to get confused. Um, I hope we can shed some light onto it. So um, let me start off by saying what is assigned sex. So human beings come in two forms, a male and a female, in terms of biology. We have different sets of chromosomes. Women, female, have two X chromosomes, and males have an X chromosome and a Y chromosome. That has an influence and an effect on the kind of sexual organs that a person is then born with, depending on which one is dominant. So if you have a double X chromosome, normally you are born with female sexual parts. And if you have an XY chromosome, then you're normally born with male sexual parts. In medicine, there are situations where things can go a little bit wrong and the sexual parts that come out can be indeterminate. So if we look at the genes, the genes might say this is a female, but there may be some remnant of a male genital, Organs. And those are the difficult ones. Now, fortunately, they are not that common, but they are the difficult ones. And in the past, uh, what the medical profession has done is when a child like that is born, experts will have a look at what it is and decide this is predominantly male or predominantly female. And that child is then brought up in that environment. The child is told you are female and we are going to raise you as a female with all the social context that goes into that. These days we've learned uh, from our mistakes in the past because we have uh, gotten it wrong. And these days we leave the child and leave it to them to make a choice of which uh, sex they want to be assigned when they are old enough to make that decision. And that age is indeterminate, so it can be at any stage uh, of their uh, life, mm-hmm. that they can decide, you know, I now want to have, because I can choose which one I, I, I can have, I, I choose to have male, female parts or male uh, sexual parts or female sexual parts. Mm-hmm. So that, that is the assigned sex uh, at birth. But there's a lot more to sex and gender and identity than merely the bits that you were born with. Mm-hmm. So Krista, what is gender?
1: Gender would be typical, uh, that's, that is the label that's been assigned by society or the expectations and it's usually associated with the parts that you have been born. So if a baby's been born with female parts, the gender that would be assigned to this baby would be female, uh, typically. Um, and then with the male, when a, a baby was born with male genitals, it will be a man. Mm-hmm. or uh, and then what ha- comes with that is to say is that is the associated gender mm-hmm. based on the the sexual parts mm. um, and with that there's a lot of expectations of what is typical female behavior or what is typical male behavior, and that's where the gender part comes in and to say is this the, the female um, because she's got female parts is then a female and she will be the typical housewife or she will have uh, or have certain roles and expectations set out by either the culture or by society to behave in a certain way
0: so if you have certain um, genitals then automatically you're put in a category where you are expected to behave in a certain way. Absolutely. Okay, and that is your gender.
1: That's your gender. Gender.
0: So, yeah. and, and that is related to your sexual organs uh, in some way, but not entirely.
1: No, basically or mainly, that would be the, the box that you, the will box that you put so in. So it's, it's like if we had to, take, to say, as you take um, and you put labels on people, is, to say, is as, the, as, as they come out of the factory and they're being born, and to say, tee, tee, tee. okay, this one has got female parts, okay, the label that we put is female around, and they off you go. So this is from here on forward, this is the type of dress code, this is the type of behavior that will be expected by just looking at this package. Okay. So if, it, if it's got tomato, tomato sauce label on it, don't expect it to be mayonnaise.
0: Right. Okay. Good. That's a very good example. <laughs> um, Charles, uh, what then is gender identity? Is it something different? Yes, there are actually a certain way of that it is different.
2: Identity is also the way you feel inside your inner self, who you are. I mean, it's easy for a person to tell, say to them, listen, you are male or female, this is the way you you are going to behave. But identity goes, how are you, yourself? You that are, for instance, called uh, John. Who is John really? Your identity goes about you as a person. How you interact, how you feel, who you actually are. And that is one big uh, misconception that people sometimes uh, think or that they don't understand is to look at themselves in their identity. And gender is much more, it's not just female or male. The identity plays a role. Where do you fit in, in mm. society
0: as well? Okay, so what we're saying is you were born with certain organs you were put into a particular box because of that, but your identity is where you feel you actually belong, which box you feel you belong in. Yes, definitely. So I might have, I might be in a male box, but I feel that I'm a female and I want to yes. behave like a female because that is more natural for me or the other way around. So the identity is where our very simple system of bits and boxes Uh, starts getting a little bit uh, uh, frayed around the edges. What happens then with someone who is homosexual? Where does that fit into these three concepts?
1: When we start talking, that's a complete new terminology that will come into play, and this is where we talk about sexual or orientation. Okay. So if we're talking about, first we spoke about sex, to say that is the bits and bobs. Yeah. And then we have your gender and your gender identity. So Mm -hmm. you've you've got your gender. We said it's the tomato uh, bottle with the label on it. And then the identity is we expect this tomato sauce bottle to be tomato sauce when you pour it out. But out comes mayonnaise Mm. because the identity... Is different so what it inside how they feel and what they associate with is different when we start talking about homosexuality and, and heterosexuality we're talking about the sexual orientation in other words is the this the whether I'm attracted sexually to the opposite sex or the same sex so then we start talking about the person it, it, the gender identity is, is m- might Irre- be irrelevant. 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 This yeah. is, who is, who do I choose as my predominant sexual partner?
0: Do I choose it?
1: Well, it's actually not a choice. That's not a choice. But in a sense, who do I prefer? It's like my natural, my, my inborn preference.
0: Right. Who turns me on?
1: And that's, that's where we actually go. Okay. So that's, when we talk about homosexuality, we heterosexuality. We're talking about sexual orientation. So who do I I have a sexual attraction to? Who do I have sex
0: with? Right, okay. I think let's play some music here. And we'll be back in a moment to Gay SA Radio, where you are family.
3: Gay SA Radio is an online radio platform intended
0: for LGBTQ plus adults. Please note that the content may not be suitable for children under the age of 16. Parental guidance is strongly advised because sometimes we swear.
1: You are listening to Gay SA Radio where you are family. A warm welcome to our listeners to our show called Let's Talk. This is a show where we're going to talk about various topics that influence and can influence our daily lives. A warm welcome to the Let's Talk team, who consists of Dr. Ezio Baraldi, specialist medical practitioner and medical sexologist, Chris Dacuzia, psychologist and psychosexologist, and then Joel Grief, our specialised counsellor with special interest in gay and lesbian relationships. During a previous uh, talk, we've covered PREP, which is pre-exposure prophylaxis. Today, we're going to talk about PEP which is post-exposure prophylaxis. Now, to kick off the show, Dr. Baroldi, can you shed some light for on what is PEP?
0: Hello, Krista, and welcome to our listeners. So, PEP is post-exposure prophylaxis. Prophylaxis means prevention. Post-exposure means after an exposure. And our listeners shouldn't get it confused with PREP, P-R-E-P, which is pre-exposure. Prophylaxis, which we've covered in a previous show. So, pre exposure, you take some medication before you're exposed to the virus in order to prevent the entry of the virus. Post exposure prophylaxis, the virus, the event has already happened and the chances are the virus is already there. So, what we can do there is it's not all lost and not all doom and gloom because if we take medication early enough, we can actually prevent whatever viruses come in from taking a foothold in the body.
1: Something like, similar, like the morning after pull.
0: Something to that to effect. To prevent? Yes, to prevent a pregnancy, yeah. It's that kind of idea. The important thing about post-exposure prophylaxis is there's a time limit to this. It doesn't help you to take medication and the virus has already taken a hold in the body. So you've got to do it before that happens. And that time window is 72 hours. From the event. So, and the closer you are, or the shorter that time period is, the higher the success rate for post exposure prophylaxis. Beyond 72 hours, it probably won't work. So if uh, there has been a sexual encounter where there has been mixing of body fluids for whatever reason, condom broke, we didn't use it, mm. for whatever reason, and we are worried about it, then within 72 hours we've got to start taking medication. That's post-exposure prophylaxis.
1: And what would that medication
0: be? That is a changing subject. Because technically speaking, if you are exposed to a virus, to, to the, virus, the HIV yeah. virus, you may well be exposed by someone who is already on treatment and hasn't taken his medication properly. Okay. If that is the case, then the chances are that the virus that is being transmitted has already seen some of the medication and may be resistant to them. So, in theory, what we should be doing is for post exposure prophylaxis, we should be using medicines that the virus is unlikely to have seen in the past. Therefore, we normally use drugs that are not commonly used in the treatment of HIV in the population in question. Mm-hmm. And that changes depending on where you are, obviously which country you're in, and uh, also in terms, it changes in terms of what are your national guidelines and what is the preferred drug combination in your country. So, in our country, for instance, we normally use a triple combination of medication as Our country
1: a, being South, South Africa. Africa. In
0: South Africa, yeah. Uh, A triple combination of uh, tenofovir, uh, m and defavorins all together in one tablet. And technically speaking, that's not the drug we should be using because they might be resistant to one of them. So if you do land up getting post-exposure prophylaxis, and it has to be prescribed by a doctor, unfortunately, um, because the the drugs are scheduled, you will be given something that you've never heard of before, which is exactly what we want. We will use third-line and fourth-line drugs To use post-exposure prophylaxis. It has to be prescribed by a doctor. Unfortunately, these drugs are all on prescription. You can't just walk into the chemist and say, I've got an, an emergency. And then you need to know that you take the medication and it has to be taken for 28 days. You have to complete the course. Why is that? Because... In terms of what we've seen, and I mean, we've been doing this since the beginning of the epidemic, since the 1980s, so we've got a lot of collected data, and we do find that if you are using it less than 28 or 30 days, then the chances of success are less. So you need to make sure that you complete the course, which is where a lot of people have a problem. The side effects of the medication are mild in Mm -hmm. general, Mm -hmm. but there is a fear of taking these medications and the anxiety component of having to take a post-exposure prophylaxis uh, normally makes the side effects a lot worse. Remember these are the medicines we normally use to treat HIV Mm -hmm. and all those patients are okay with their medication. The side effects are mild.
1: If you say that people are anxious Mm. to take it, Mm. are they anxious of the medication or are they anxious of getting HIV. They're, what, anxious what of,
0: is... they're anxious of getting HIV, okay. add onto it the idea that all these things have got terrible side effects, add onto it the guilt potentially of damn it why didn't I use the condom. Mm. Okay, And you land end up with a very, very anxious and confused patient. And the side effects then are a lot worse.
1: What I'm actually, and and I've seen it in practice as well, is that it should actually be a treatment regime in the sense of when you get your post prophylaxis or your post-exposure prophylaxis, the doctor should actually, at the same time, refer you to go and speak to a counsellor?
0: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So
1: it should be a combination approach?
0: Approach, absolutely. Look, potentially picking up HIV is, in most people's minds, a potentially life-threatening event. Mm. Uh, it is seriously anxiety-producing, and it needs to be contextualised. Mm. And I think it has to do a lot also with... The whole fear element that is involved in having sex these days Mm -hmm. because of the potential exposure to HIV, which is one of the reasons why pre-exposure prophylaxis is so useful because it takes away that anxiety Mm -hmm. that you may have. But we have landed up because of the virus in a situation where every sexual encounter is an anxiety trigger or potentially an anxiety trigger. And certainly counselling is part of it. Remember that post-exposure prophylaxis, like pre-exposure prophylaxis, only works on the HIV virus. Mm -hmm. So it won't protect you from um, syphilis, gonorrhea, or any of the other uh, sexually transmitted infections. So part of your prescription should also be potentially an antibiotic to try and cover those. Mm -hmm. Another reason why you need to go and see your doc. Mm -hmm. You can't just get it over the counter. If you've had the need for post-exposure prophylaxis once or maybe twice, then you would be a very good candidate for pre-exposure prophylaxis. You can't stay on post-exposure prophylaxis forever because you're um, in a situation where behavior can be a little bit risky. Hmm. So pre-exposure prophylaxis is the answer there.
1: I think that's shedding quite a lot of light on that because there's a lot of myths, there's a lot of unknown factors around here. Uh, Ito, you were mentioning possible side effects and you said that you know, they are not as severe as what people might think they are, but mm. what are they?
0: Well, it depends on what medication is used. Remember we said we use various medication and each one has got its own side effects. Mm. But in general, we are looking at headaches, we are looking at a little bit of a stomach upset, we're looking at a little bit of nausea potentially, and that all in the first 10 days or so. The anxiety ramps that up a lot and it can persist. There are very few people that don't overcome those initial side effects Mm -hmm. because they are intolerant to the medication. Those people exist, of course, Mm -hmm. but there's very few of them. I find if I'm treating doctors that have uh, pricked themselves with a needle. I find that those side effects are magnified a thousand times simply because a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. And I often find that the best way to deal with that is a tranquilizer, to add on a tranquilizer just to get rid of that panic that people are in. But generally, the first week, you're looking at some headaches, you're looking at a little bit of nausea, very seldom vomiting, and possibly a a bit of a, a runny tummy.
1: But you could go to your doctor and ask him, is this medically related, to, to actually just get peace of mind, Correct. rather that, than to just stop it.
0: Yes, absolutely, you should never stop it. And if there are side effects, there's medication we can use to treat those side effects. Okay. So if you're nauseous, we can give you something. If you've got diarrhea, we can give you something. But you should never stop the medication because that defeats the whole purpose of the exercise.
1: Thank you, Etio. We're going to to take a short break and going to listen to some music and we'll be back.
3: Do you want to meet the person who can introduce you to your next client? Net Your Niche is an online networking platform that reduces the time, money, and effort of traditional marketing and allows you to focus on what truly matters. Meeting someone who can refer you to the exact person you're looking for. No more calling secretaries and being put on hold. Sign up today at a 20% discount and make sure you don't miss out on meeting new clients any longer. Visit us on nyn.co.za or call us on 012 947 9599.
0: Welcome back, everyone, to GaySA Radio, where you are family and you are listening to our program Let's Talk uh, with myself, Ezio Beraldi, Chris Kutzia, and Charles Khriev. Our topics today are the intricate issues of gender, sex, and identity. We have discussed a few of those uh, definitions, and we're going to move on now to what is the difference between intersex and transsexualism. We hear these words, they're in the media, they're everywhere else, and what do they actually mean? To me, those two sounds very much the same, Krista.
1: They do. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's what a lot of people get to say is they don't quite know what to do with all of this terminology um, it's quite frightening because just now people have sort of come to terms with um, you know homosexuality, heterosexuality, as we discussed earlier to so say we understand sort of what it means if a gender has been assigned to a certain person, but what what happens when we talk about intersex and uh, transgender? Or Transsexualism, like you say. And I think those are very, me- there's some medical explanations to the difference of them. So I'm going to throw it right back at you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, all right, let's see what I can do with that. Intersex basically is one of those situations where the person is born with both male and female mm-hmm. genitalia, and they are both so prominent that you can't really quite make up your mind which way is the most dominant one. Mm. So normally uh, you would have an intersex uh, or a mixed genitalia that is born, but it fe- looks more female than male, so we kind of think it, it veers more in that direction. In intersex, it's, it's like a 50-50. Mm.
1: Um,
0: we don't really know which way this can go, and it could go either way.
1: In your experience as a medical doctor, it's, uh, is, would people then have a need to have to make a decision because of society and the person having to fit within its agenda? We, we discussed that earlier, and to say, mm. is female or male, if you have both, what are you?
0: Yeah. So that, that is a big issue.
1: Mm. So
0: the issue is not necessarily biological, it's social. So all very well, I've had my child now, my child has got genitals of both genders, okay, so how do I bring this child up? Mm. Where does this child fit in? How do I address this child?
1: So it's the roles
0: and the expectations. How do I address Mm. this child, Mm. okay? And Mm. very often the parents, because uh, they also... Uh, very confused with all of this, look to the medical profession and say, well, give me some guidance, oh. okay? Uh, which way should this be? And uh, normally we do give some advice, but very often, or well, not very often, but we have in the past got it wrong. And we've landed up saying to the parents, look, this child looks mostly female, so bring the child up as a female. But as they grow older, uh, they then feel that they are actually male. Their identity mm. uh, then becomes male. So... Um, and that's not quite a, uh, a transsexual then because there is a genetic and anatomical difference mm-hmm. in an intersex. So the intersex eventually decides that uh, what we do now is we say when the child is old enough, let them decide which way they want to go. Mm-hmm. So they then choose the surgery that will make them congruent with their own gender identity. Uh, the child feels I am mostly male, I feel male in my head, I feel comfortable with boys, so take off the bits that are not male.
1: I think the, the terminology that we often hear and that people will most probably pick up is when people start saying, is, I've got the body of a woman, but I feel like a man trapped in a female's body. And those are the type of things of where the difference between the assigned sex whether it was intersex in the beginning and the decision was made Mm. but the identity Mm. is different and that's when we start hearing these type of comments from people
0: correct so that brings us directly into Mm. transsexualism Mm. so transsexual is a situation where the anatomical bits belong to say for instance female Mm. the gender of that person is female but their identity Mm. is male Mm. So those are classically those who feel in the wrong body Mm. and those are very different to the intersexes and it's very different to the biological things, very different to patients born with a double XY chromosome for instance. Mm. Um, That is very much an identity issue which is let's say a pure identity as opposed to an identity which is also driven by dubious sexual parts and that is a very big subject at the moment mm-hmm. uh, our transgender community to a very large extent uh, suffered in silence for many many years mm-hmm. um, and now they've uh, we've woken up and we have given them the space to to do something about the way they feel um, inside what is the process then for these um, for transgender individuals. Can they change their uh, sex or must they change their gender, Krista?
1: You know what what often happens is uh, they don't have to change their sex. A lot of the transgenders actually choose to not go through the whole uh, transitioning process. But I think it is important to assist the individual to really choose to say is, this is who I am emotionally, this is what I identify with, and then to choose how they would like to live Mm -hmm. their lives. So a lot of them will actually say, "I, I know who I am, I choose to conform in terms of the expectations to the outside world, but my, my, I'm okay with that. Others will go to the point to say, is, I don't want to go through the whole transitioning, physical changing, but I actually choose to, they will start dressing up according to the identity that they, that they identify with. They will choose to change their names to the male or female identity that they actually uh, associate with. And that's where we will start those socially Will transition. Mm. Mm. But they might not go to the full physical transitioning. But what is important is for the individual to feel and know that, that they not abnormal. Correct. That they are who they are and that they are have got the right to identify with that.
0: Right. So irrespective of what genitals I was born with, yes. I have the right to actually choose which identity I want to go with. Often not a choice, it, just, it is, uh, it just is.
1: I think more to, inter- I choose how I would live it out.
0: I'd live it out, yeah. So whether I become open about it or whether I don't, mm. yeah. Um, all right, so in my experience as well, we've, um, I've, I've helped a number of patients trans- uh, transition. And uh, it's, it's normally a hormone issue, mm. obviously. The hormones play a big role. But yes, there are many that don't want to go through the whole surgical process Mm -hmm. because it's almost as if my identity is enough for me. I don't need the genitals to prove it, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. Um, And it is a very liberating place to be for, for a transgender to know that they are allowed to be who they feel they are without all the consequences and repercussions that happened in the past. And that's not to say that there aren't any... Present repercussions um, to that, you know. Um, I think science and ethics and morals and human rights have moved far quicker than what the population has managed to keep up to, and so in a social context, there is still going to be problems that these patients face. But at least from the medical profession and from the helping professions, rather, there is an acceptance now, as opposed to what was in the past. Uh, an approach of trying to change them back because they've made a mistake somewhere. Mm. So, yeah, uh, there's a lot that we can do for these patients.
1: I think what is important, Ezio, uh, to, to just jump in there, there's a lot of scientifical words trying to describe a lot of things. Mm. Uh, we spoke about your sex, you know, the genitalia, the, the gender that's been, been um, expected of you because of the parts that you have. Um, And I think what is important for me that people take from today with them is to say is irrespective of the parts, irrespective of what science describe you as. There's a difference to what I identify with. Mm. Um, And society has come a long way. But we're still in baby shoes in terms of really opening up and accommodating all of the, the differences between us as individuals. Psychological, identity-wise, expectations according to roles, there's a fluidity that's starting to evolve, mm. and people need to be open to that. And if you feel within yourself that what I've been assigned with and what I feel I am, Um, that there's a discrepancy if there's nothing wrong with it the important thing is to find maybe an ear somebody Mm. that can guide you and work with you through that to just and yourself feel okay with that come to peace with that irrespective of who else is out there and that's the important part to start with it's out with all of these exact that you have to fit within a certain box Mm. Hmm. I think the lids have been popped blown open. off.
0: blown off yeah yeah certainly um, it's important I think for people to know that they have a right to feel the way they do um, and they should um, and maybe the radio station can also help with that uh, be put into contact with people that work with us so find a place where you are uh, fully accepted and guided but um, I just want to end this with um, the scientific process Um, Science works by looking at something, observing it and saying, I have seen this and now I'm going to give it a name Mm. because otherwise I forget what it is. So I'll give it a name and then I see something else and I give it another name. And science works by breaking things down into its lowest, minutest little details. That's phase one of science. Phase two of science is to get all those labels and put them all back and reconstruct the whole thing backwards because now I can understand the whole thing as opposed to just the one little bit of it. And I think in terms of gender, sexuality and identity, we are starting with the reconstruction process. Um, We've broken it down into its little bits and it's now, we're busy now putting it together. We're finding our feet as we go along and certainly people that are uh, transgender or have gender identity issues uh, need to help us with that because we have to reconstruct the whole thing again so that we can really say now we know what's going on. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to us. That's the end of our show for today, our Let's Talk. We look forward to seeing you again in one of our other um, sessions with uh, Krista Kutzia, our clinical psychologist and sexologist, Shaul Khrif, our specialized counselor and special, with a special interest in gay and lesbian relationships, and myself, Itzhir Beraldi, clinical Doctor and medical sexologist, and you are listening to Gay Radio, where you are family.
3: Like Gay Radio's pages on Facebook.
0: Welcome to Gay Radio, where you are family. Welcome to our show, Let's Talk, in which we discuss issues that either do or may potentially influence our daily lives. I met Dr. Ezio Baroldi. I'm a medical practitioner and medical sexologist and part of the team. With me today is Krista Kutsia, our psychologist and psychosexologist, and Charles Gref, specialized counselor with a special interest in gay and lesbian relationships. Our topic for today, we are going to have a look at the behavior and we are going to discuss some of the risky behavior associated with taking PEP and PrEP. We will remember that PrEP is pre-exposure prophylaxis, So something that we take in order to prevent an infection with the HIV virus. And post-exposure prophylaxis, we have covered in a previous program, is taking medication after a risky exposure and with that preventing the virus from taking hold in the body. But today we are looking at belief systems around these two interventions. There seems to be a lot of myths and a lot of confusion around what these two things can and can't do. And the taking of these interventions also has psychological and social repercussions, which we will have a look at during the course of the program. So, um, Charles, let's start off with you. Are you aware of any myths or any misconceptions around the use of PEP and PrEP?
2: I think there are a lot of misconceptions at this stage, questions that people usually ask. One of the aspects is people want to withdraw them from sexual activity to punish themselves. Some of them brings a religious aspect in and says, no, um, they're expecting God to to punish him, that something negative will happen with him. So there's a lot of aspects that people
0: bring in. That is just two of the points that I've mentioned now. So in other words, what you're saying is that if someone has gone, say, for instance, on post-exposure prophylaxis because they engage in a risky sexual behavior, they know that they've done something that they shouldn't have done Yes, and they expect punishment for that.
2: That's correct. I think that is a normal, traditional way of thinking that that comes with people now for a very long time, that they must be punished. And they always think about a guilt system and what is right and wrong.
1: Uh, Shol, you're mentioning something, and I think the whole punishment aspect. And I've actually experienced that some people will either feel it as a punishment, taking the medication. Mm -hmm. So every time I swallow a pill, it's a reminder that I have done something that is socially unacceptable or religiously coming from Mm -hmm. whichever belief system you come from, that you have done something wrong. And the other aspect that happens is that people stop taking their medication. Because subconsciously there's a thing of where I'm not supposed to be protected from not getting this virus because I have done something wrong.
0: And I need to so, be punished for it. So no. my yeah.
1: punishment is I mustn't take this medication because I am supposed to be punished. So by by then for allowing the virus to actually take hold of me, that will be my punishment for life and a reminder.
0: And that punishment then exonerates you. Yes. From what you've actually done. So I've got
1: this because I have done that. Um, It's like somebody will say is I've got a scar on my leg because I skipped a robot and I had a car accident and that scar reminds me for the rest of my life. It's in my face.
0: How prevalent is this need for punishment and is it the same in all cultures?
1: That is definitely
2: not the same in all cultures and I think there are busy mind shifting is busy taking place People previously think between black and white, right and wrong. The thing is either right or wrong. There are Mm. no gray areas. Mm. And I think we've realized in life things are not so straightforward black or white.
0: Mm.
2: Mm. There are a lot of gray areas that we need to take in consideration. And it is as if people's way of thinking are starting to change, but it's changing very, very slowly walking away from the modernist way of thinking more, some of them postmodernists, some of them post foundationalists we can talk about that one day yes might. we
0: can, at length, yes we um, can Yes,
2: that is the thing that's taking place and that depends now, or also have influence on the religious aspect and normal belief systems of mm. people for some of them it becomes acceptable the idea that you will not be punished for everything, only for certain things
0: And you can get away with the rest? Yes.
2: That is one aspect that also pops out. Then you still get people who think punishment should be for everything in life. Whether you are a religious person and believe in God or not, the way of thinking punishment must be there. It must come from somebody or somewhere.
0: From some authority? Yes. From somewhere? Yes. Okay.
1: It keeps on coming back to my mind when I talk about punishment. Um, the term that runs parallel to that is take responsibility. Mm. Mm. And I think we need to uh, move away from the headmistress sitting there or headmaster sitting there ready to whip you uh, Mm. because you've done something wrong. Often what I do with my clients and I explain to say is if you have to take out a loan at the bank, you are in actual fact going to be punished by paying interest. And if you continue paying your monthly instalment, which includes the interest, at some stage you're going to get to a zero balance. So you've paid your dues. You've taken responsibility by paying your monthly rent or your portion plus the interest, and you've you've actually there comes a time when it's over. It's done with. And it might be useful for somebody to start looking at that in terms of punishment. There comes a time to say, yes, I've engaged in risky sexual behavior. Yes, there's a responsibility or a consequence that needs to be taken. And if I follow the regime and I deal with what comes with this package, there's going to come a time that you say, I've paid my dues. It's done the important thing is to not get yourself into debt again you know mm-hmm. to, yeah. and that's that's where the psychological part is I always say is you, you can feel guilty but it's gonna be a waste of energy feeling guilty if you don't do anything about it
2: definitely mm-hmm. and I think okay. that guilt does have a negative influence on the body as well by thinking that in that sense of you must be punished and so you actually put more tension on the body which can have medical influence and Take mm. f- longer for that person to uh, recover completely. I always tell them, listen, think about that, that you're actually breaking down your body's immune system when you start thinking negatively. You're yes. putting tension on yourself the whole time. And it's a very interesting concept that you use there. Mm. Um, I would definitely tell people then, then, taking your medication, isn't that the rent that you're paying?
1: Mm-hmm. Because after 28 days, you've actually Done. With the loan. You, you've, you've, you've done with the loan. Mm. You've dealt with, you've taken responsibility for what got you into that mess, if we can call it in inverted commas, in the first no. place. Exactly. Correct. And so, you've been responsible, and from there on, the question is, what do I do from there on?
0: And that's where I want to come in and ask the next question, because it's all very really well to say, uh, there was an event and there was a consequence. The consequence was the medication. It's 28 days and I've finished it That's a very intellectual way of mm. looking at it and a very logical way of looking at it, but guilt is illogical mm. and What happens if that approach? isn't sufficient to calm down your guilt feelings Your guilt feelings might be very strong because of previous upbringing and Etc. Uh, Etc. Cetera, et cetera, you know the nature and nurture thing and some people may be completely overwhelmed by those feelings of guilt and they don't know how to control them. And logic isn't going to have much of an effect on that. Guilt feeds itself to a large extent, and it's based on your, pre—not not pre-programming, but your very early programming of what is right and wrong and what are the consequences of that. So presuming you've paid, your, paid off your, your debt and the guilt still remains, then what?
1: The important thing, and I'm I'm glad you raised it, because I think we're talking about uh, paying back the debt and all of those things are very practical stuff. Mm. And those are usually your crisis intervention moments. Because while I'm busy in this crisis, I've got a specific structure to follow. And I feel at least, you know, with the guidance, with a with counsellor, I feel I am doing something about that. The important thing is within that period to start laying the foundation to say is from here on forward, what got you into this in the first place? Why did you have a need to actually go and engage in, in risky behaviour? If this opportunity arises again in the future, how would you want to deal with it differently? and then start working with those practic- practical situations with people, bring their belief systems, assist them to really look at that and to say, where do I stand with this and what do I make with what do I make of this? And how do I want to take responsibility for my life from this day forward? Um, and I think those are, those are the important things. We, we discussed that in a previous uh, conversation as well, of how important it is with PrEP and with PEP to bring counselling with that. Because swallowing a pole is one thing, but we don't always realise that this pole c- contains all the chemicals in there, but it also contains, it's, it's a reminder of everything that is with it. So it becomes difficult to swallow. Mm. if I don't know um, psychologically what I'm busy swallowing
0: mm. Mm. interesting for me guilt apart from the practical things that you've mm. um, highlighted I think guilt can be used after the event mm-hmm. um, to take a responsibility for your actions the way you mentioned earlier on and use that guilt if you can't get rid of the guilt and it stays there then use it as a reminder that will guide your actions the next time you're thinking of taking a risk.
1: There's something about that, forgive, but don't forget. But don't
0: forget, that's right. So forgive yourself, but don't forget.
3: Just north of the fast-paced business world of Sandton, mm-hmm. Johannesburg lies the Indaba Hotel, Spa and Conference Centre nestled beneath the vista of the magnificent Mahalisburg Mountains
2: searching for the perfect gift but don't want the hassle of hitting the malls moana spa pamper vouchers are now available online visit moanaspa.co.za for more info or to purchase your voucher quick easy and convenient why not treat yourself or you're better off to a moana online pamper voucher
0: the perfect to me from me gift welcome back everyone you're listening to SA radio where and we are um, discussing today on our program, Let's Talk, we are discussing behavior, risky behavior, risky sexual behavior, um, when um, taking PEP or PrEP, um, and in general, I think, in terms of our sexual activities. One of the things that we discussed a little earlier on was the fact that guilt comes into it. So we've um, we've taken some risk with our sexual activity. Now we have an intervention, we take, we go on PEP to prevent the virus, but we still feel guilty about it mm-hmm. afterwards. And what does that do for us? So there are a number of practical interventions that we have discussed, but what happens if the guilt is still there? So one of the things that can happen is that I decide I'm just going to withdraw from sexual activity. I'm not going to go through that trauma again of something potentially going wrong. Or the other option is it's fine. Um, I've gone through it once. Now I know what it's like. And if it happens again, I know what to expect from the medication. So off I go and I do risky things again. So one gives a false sense of security. The other creates a fear, uh, an avoidance uh, response. In terms of Going ahead and just saying, you know what, there's medicine for this thing now, so what what the hell, I don't have to worry about things. I think that is, um, to some extent, an overreaction to the availability of PEP and PrEP. Mm -hmm. Yes, they do make things better, but it's not the universal answer. So you still have to take responsibility for your sexual behavior, and you still need to be able to manage your sexual behavior. And of course that becomes very difficult when alcohol and drugs are, are involved, but that's something else we can discuss at some other point. So these interventions do make it easier. What happens when the guilt is such that I am now going to withdraw entirely? I am not going to have sex with people I don't know. I am going to maybe not go out and meet people because just now this happens again and basically just I don't want anything to do with this anymore and I'm going to become non-sexually active outside of my, my, myself really. What happens there in terms of the psychological knock-ons and the, the whole feeling of self-acceptance? What happens to all of that?
1: Well, that's, that's a spiral all on its own mm. um, because there's, there's reasons and I think we need to, to dig underneath it and to say what, are, what is actually happening. And in counselling, that is exactly where you will go. To say is your choice of behaviour in response to this is actually a decision that you're making and how am I going to behave from this day forward. Mm-hmm. It still doesn't really address why I'm feeling yes. my need to behave in a different way. Okay. So I think that's that's an important thing for you to go into because all of those, the avoidance, that's going to be a safe space to go in because you won't be exposed to it. Correct. Uh, that can be a punishment. There's, there's a lot of reasons why people choose a certain behaviour pattern. For me, as a psychologist, the underlying thing that I'll go and look at to say is where does the sense of responsibility lie? How much of that is blaming myself and how much is, am I blaming the other person? So the important thing for me would be to assist a person to get in touch with their own inner strength and what they choose to do with that from here on forward. Because by cutting yourself off from other people, you're also denying yourself pleasure and, and yes. happiness. So is that the punishment that you are going to lay out for yourself for the rest of your life? Mm. It's so important to really assist this person to take full responsibility for their contribution in getting themselves into this point and that they have also a responsibility and they've got the power to make decisions from here on forward. And what are they going to do with it? So, so it's 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 actually such a complex. Uh, just looking uh, looking at the choices of behavior from there on forward is still not addressing what is underlying all of that. I don't know, Charles, if you agree with no, me. No, I
2: definitely agree with you there. And I think it's going to be from which point people actually also look at it. Why was the need there in the first place uh, mm. to have that behavior? And I think the big thing is they must ask him, was it normal for me to behave in such a way or not? Mm. Normal for yourself?
1: Yes. In other
2: words, was I actually irresponsible or was the situation Mm. that was created a negative situation? And I think that is a question that people need to ask before they start blaming. Mm -hmm. Was it the situation that was negative or was it my decision to be in that sexual aspect? Mm. Uh, Incorrect. That is a big thing that I need to take a look at when asking these kind of questions. Instead of giving themselves a guilt feeling, look at the problem from the other side. Mm. Can I really point the finger towards myself? And the big thing is, why did I need to do that? Are they specific? Was it uh, due to social pleasure? Or was it that I had a need to be with another person at that stage? And I rather look at the, those kind of aspects, mm. specifically when they have got a need. Mm. I mean, we as human beings need to interact with each other. Mm. We talk, interact, actually, we talk in, on various levels. And let's be honest and straightforward: sex is also a form of communication. Oh,
0: absolutely, mm.
2: absolutely. And yes. people yes. must yes. always remember that. Yeah. So if you want to withdraw yourself
0: from sex, it's just as you withdraw yourself from not talking to any other person. Yes, now I think um, sex, apart from everything else that it is, is also a normal physiological function. Definitely. Okay? And saying I'm not going to have sex is the same as saying I'm never going to drink water again. It, it's, just, it's it doesn't also, make it's any like, sense.
1: like going on a diet. I always say is if people go on a diet and say you know, they there's f- uh, ice cream in the freezer and it's locked, and you sit here and you say, I no, I don't have a need for ice cream. But you know it's locked and you don't have the key. It's very really mm. easy to say that. Yes.
0: Yeah. So but, the moment, yeah. but the
1: moment that the, that the ice cream is sitting next to you on the table and you say, I choose to not eat of this ice cream because I actually can do without it. I would rather wait till lunchtime with my meal and I'll then have some. So you choose when.
0: And that empowers you.
1: And that's what is important in terms of, and and, and I think it connects with what you're saying, is people need to go and uh, reassess how do I got myself, what what happened, uh, what was driving me, not why did that person hit on me so hard that Mm. I gave in Mm. to do certain things that I otherwise wouldn't do. Mm. That's blaming.
3: That's, 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 that's still
1: not getting to the point of why did I yes. mm. engage? What was my contribution in that? And that will empower any person for the next situation.
0: Correct, because that's where the learning happens. Yeah. Yeah. So it doesn't really matter what happened. The important thing is that we learn from it, mm. empower ourselves with mm. the ability to make informed decisions, mm-hmm chart our own way forward and use that experience as a learning tool for putting things in place that avoid a rehash of what happened before. Mm-hmm. It's as simple as that. Learning from our mistakes. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's the easiest way to, to do it, rather than carrying on and uh, browbeating ourselves because we did something wrong five years ago.
1: For me, what is important for people to take with them is to say, is there's a, if we come back to the uh, metaphor that we used earlier is the 28 days, taking the medication or the prep before the time, that's like I'm taking out a loan, I'm paying off my debt, and then I am in that time taking further responsibility to say, what am I going to do from this day forward? How am I going to choose to engage?
0: Correct. How so that I, I don't get
1: back in this place of being guilty about everything. I actually want to have a plan.
0: Correct. A plan that fits with me where I make the decisions and I'm not buffered about by social circumstances and where I have learned from my previous experiences. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Krista. And, um, Charles, I think that's we've come to the end of today's program. I hope our listeners found it interesting. And as usual, tune in to Gay Essay Radio where you are family.